to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes that they care about and the effect that it's had on their lives. My name is Nolan Bignall. Brent Bellamy is improving Winnipeg through design. As the creative director at Number 10 Architectural Group, as well as a contributor to the Winnipeg Free Press, Brent is one of the leading voices in architecture and design in our city. You know, I think we face some of the biggest challenges in history, for sure. Social, I mean, our city is different than when I was a kid. There's no question about that. And we face some huge challenges, but I do think even this whole week, these last few weeks of opening the conversation about residential schools, I feel like these are conversations that just didn't happen 10 years ago and city building and how we can build equitable cities and why we need to invest in transit, even though you'll never get on a bus, why it's important that we have a good transit system, why there should be bike lanes in the north end and you know all of these conversations i think are happening and never would have happened 10 15 years ago i sat down with brent bellamy to talk about how urban design can affect social equity the debate about urban sprawl and downtown living and how our cities can evolve to allow future generations to thrive Welcome to Because in Effect. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined via Zoom by Brent Bellamy. He is the senior creator, or sorry, he's the creative director at Number 10 Architectural Group. Brent, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. We've wanted to have you on since season one. It's great that you finally uh, found the time for us, and we finally connected to make it happen. Um, There's no pressure there, eh? Oh, no, it'll be great. You'll be wonderful. Uh, I've been pretty much asking everyone since we started uh, the podcast after COVID has kind of hit, how has it affected your life? What what have the last 18 months been like? Let's just sort of start there and we'll see where we can go. Personally, professionally, how, how have the you know last year and a half been for you? I mean, I think everybody will say it's been a crazy time. Um, in my industry in particular, um, the architecture industry, it, there was a lot of unknown, obviously, at the beginning. We rely on the economy being good. We rely on investment and development and when it first happened and we thought the world was coming to an end, we were terrified that, you know, our, our jobs are going to be lost. And I was really uh, afraid of, of that happening. And we did definitely see a drop in, um, in a lot of the work. People weren't, weren't spending money. Obviously the government completely shut down all our projects like schools and, and government funded projects literally stopped dead. And uh, we went through a rough time at the beginning and, and we're, you know, I work for a company that's been around for 60 years and we were honestly worried that, you know, it's not going to make it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then it, it sort of leveled off and I think people kind of got used to it and um, our, our office never actually shut down at all because we're, we're considered essential workers. Most of us did go home for, for a period of time and have been coming and going depending on, on the, the caseloads. Um, but I would say now... We're, like, we're sort of the canaries in the coal mine for what the future is happening because development comes to us way before you read about it in the newspaper. And um, I would say we're in for the roaring 20s is going to be here. Like uh, we're overflowing with work and we're finding that with uh, residential work in particular, like multifamily residential is really flying right now. And I think because people, people aren't sure what the future is going to be with commercial and that kind of um, development, but um, residential people got to live somewhere. So it's a place for developers to to put their money. And so we're seeing, all, I know all architecture firms are, are really busy 
doing um, residential projects. So it's, it's very exciting and I'm busy as can be. And, I, and a lot of people in my office are too. So it's, it's great because it, it allows me to sort of forget about what's going on in the world and, and you know, focus. And, and I, I'm, I'm happy for that. That got me through the pandemic for sure. That's huge. Yeah, that was going to be kind of my next question because I'm, I'm having a lot of discussions, debates, you know, kind of arguments with certain people about how much is society actually going to um, pivot and change after this whole thing, you know, because I'm sort of the optimist. I think that people are going to sort of realign what's important and understand, you know, kind of what we need. But that leaves sort of a big question mark as to there's a lot of office space downtown. There's a lot of space that's that was not currently used or not going to be used or like our offices at the foundation is a good example. But maybe just what do you see trends wise aside from the residential, you know, expansions and what do you see that's both good and what do you see that that concerns you with how society is going to shift after this whole thing shakes down i think there's a lot of unknown for sure i also believe that uh the world has more inertia than we believe Mm. that it takes even a seismic shift like this i think people are eager not even eager but i think inertia is so strong that we will return to a more normal than we think like halfway through the the pandemic, I was writing columns in the free press about how it's a big new world and who knows what's going to come out the other side. And we, we got this opportunity to create a, a different world and build back better, build back stronger. And I honestly think that once it's once we get to a little bit of normal, normal is going to flood back. And, and I'm even reading in Australia where they're like sort of six months, eight months ahead of us as far as the pandemic goes. They're at something like 94 percent office capacity already. Like people have just gone back. There's more flexibility which I've always sort of felt was going to be the future, like more of these types of meetings instead of having to fly places and and having face-to-face meetings, because that is one of the big advantages. But, you know, I've spent years designing office buildings and offices that have places for people to meet and gather and share ideas and pollinate, you know, creativity and those kinds of things and and establish, um, you know, corporate culture and those kinds of things. And that's not going away. Like businesses still their profits are in their employees and the creativity is what pays the bills. It's what drives a company to, to be great. It's not saving rent. So I think there's going to be some, some shift in sort of the day to day. We won't look at uh, working from home as uh, you know, sure you're at the cottage. It happens to be a Friday. I think people will understand working from home can happen and there'll be more flexibility, but I, I feel like there will be uh, less shift than we think. But that being said, even one day a week, people staying home is 20% fewer people coming downtown. That's a huge impact on public transit, on, as you say, like office space in the downtown. Office space might be might look different, um, which is a great opportunity, I think, to then redefine downtown the way I've sort of wanted it to be all along, not just a destination for workers, but an actual neighborhood that people live in and play in and, you know, are educated in and raise children in and and an actual place that want that people want to be, not just a place that they come to eat and and go to a Jets game and then get out as fast as possible. So I think yeah. there's a real opportunity in that. What What is the biggest barrier from allowing people to have this full one, 360 degree life in one area? You know, like people want to live where their schools are. People want to live close to work at least. But why Why is there this this monumental shift where we just blast, you know, 100,000 people down from nine to five and then everyone kind of backs out? Like where did that mindset come from and, and how do we kind of shift away from it? What's the biggest hurdle to shift away from that that mindset? 
it's decades and decades old like it happened in the in the 50s really um i hate to be uh anti-car guy but cars were the were the reason we started building further and further out we started um you know creating the donut of a city which happened all across north america the the center evacuated and and the and the outsides populated and i think i do believe that that's changing it's changing in cities all across the world in north america it's happening less here because you know i always i always joke that uh, the world will end and 10 years later we'll notice it in winnipeg because I, we're sort of that way we mm-hmm. we're very cautious and and slow to adapt but i think if you look at other cities they're starting to, to want that urban feel. They want, you know, more connected neighborhoods. They want walkability. They want public transit. You know, they're understanding what it costs to own a car. Um, they just want that connected lifestyle. And I think that that will come here. And, and we're starting to see it. Neighborhoods like Osborne Village are, are blossoming right now. Cordon area, those the inner city areas are starting to grow. And I think the downtown is really the next piece of that puzzle. Yeah, very well said. Um, so... I, I, you're a great follow on Twitter for those of uh, for those of our listeners that have have a Twitter account, Brent underscore Bellamy on Twitter. But you, it's it, it's a mixture of lighthearted and informative stuff, but a lot of like really cool educational stuff. Maybe what is your approach to Twitter and how what is the response that you've gained in the last you know five five years or so from people sort of having these conversations? Do you feel like the conversations are you know productive and and useful, or is it more just kind of like? throwing your ideas against a wall sometimes or what's that experience like for you yeah i love the i love the dialogue on twitter i when i first started twitter i was one of those i never had a facebook account i was totally against social media and and just this like going into that void um but when i started writing in the free press i saw it as an opportunity to sort of further the dialogue to take what i was writing and actually put it out there and see what the reaction was and and get opinions um for and against and and i've learned so much from Twitter. And honestly, it's been the greatest education tool outside of my university degrees, for sure, because it's it allows me to put an idea out there and see what people think. I live in a bubble like I have friends who are like minded. um, And so if you're talking always to the same people, you think your opinions are could be the only opinions. And so you throw something out on Twitter, you learn pretty quickly that (laughs) your opinion is maybe even wrong because you're being told by people are telling you who have expertise, you know, this and this and this. And the beauty of it is it's global. It's not just Winnipeg. So it's easy to get sucked into the Winnipeg. This is how things are done in Winnipeg. And I love to talk more about what's happening in other cities. And, you know, Winnipeg could do that. You get, you always get the, oh, well, Winnipeg isn't Copenhagen or Winnipeg isn't whatever, whatever. But the things, the lessons that they have to teach us are applicable. Maybe we translate it into the Winnipeg context, but Twitter and social media really allows us to have a dialogue across the entire world. I sent a tweet out on Friday. Um, uh, I went and measured the the temperature when it was so hot. I went to Canadian Tire and bought a, a steak thermometer, and I just wanted to see what the difference in temperature was on the street with trees and a block without trees. So I went to Edmonton Street, which is most people don't realize that most of downtown used to have used to be like Wolseley or West Broadway. It was a residential neighborhood and it had boulevard trees, big elm trees. And in the 50s, 60s and even 70s, they they demolished all the trees to widen the streets to add car lanes. And so you can see on um, the blocks closest to Assiniboine that what it could have what it was like before the trees were torn down. So I went there and I measured the temperatures 
um, on the trees on the streets with block or the blocks with trees, and then the very next block without trees. And this the difference in temperature was staggering. It was 15 degrees Celsius yeah. difference between the two one like 200 meters apart. I sent that out on Twitter, and it's been seen. I just checked before it by almost two million people across yeah. the world, and I'm watching it like different languages being translated into different languages because it's a global, you know, trees and shade and and how do we make our, our cities more uh, sustainable and livable? That's an issue for the whole world. Yeah. So it's great to see opinions from all across the world coming back to me on, you know, on my little phone in Winnipeg. That was the exact, you know, tweet, uh, series of tweets that, that made me want to ask that question because it was such, I was like, oh my God, yeah, design when it comes to climate change and global warming, I didn't even kind of put those two together, but you have to be thinking that way to survive like we, we we can't keep doing the things that we were doing you know like walking down a street when it's 45 degrees or 30 degrees is going to save lives like you know it elderly people will. can yeah. go outside so when it comes to global warming and climate change and moving forward how have you seen the literature and the conversation sort of evolve when it comes to design and, and city planning and cityscapes like what are what's your what's your take on that it's fascinating, actually. I had a really interesting week last week, and it was part of the reason I went to measure the temperatures because um, I was working on a project, a top secret project, but a great project that is applying for uh, federal uh, funding, uh, green building funding. It's through the Department of Infrastructure, and it's a it's a, a grant program for green buildings. Done that often. It's usually about um, how much energy you're saving. What are your greenhouse gas emissions? Um, those kinds of, you know, how much insulation do you have? It's sort of those kind of, are you going to have solar panels? All those questions. And this, um, this program had that. That was the first half. The second half was about building resilience. Mm -hmm. And how, basically the question is, how will your project survive in the future? How will it survive the, you know, what's coming? It wasn't, and it shocked me because it wasn't, the government has always been, how do we avoid? How do we, how do we mitigate? How do we, you know, avoid this thing? Suddenly the language in this document, and this is a major national um, program, is asking, how do we deal with what's coming and what's here? And that was like, holy, if the government has made that intellectual leap that we're talking about what's coming and what's actually here, that's a completely different conversation for me. And it, it kind of, you know, I was sitting there filling out this, on Canada Day, I was filling out this form and writing and writing, you know, watching on, on TV and on, the, on um, Twitter about how the Western half of the continent is melting into the ground and forest fires everywhere. And, and I'm writing this, how is this project gonna, gonna survive the apocalypse? It was <laughs> a pretty shocking few days and it really, it was humbling. And it put me in my place to, to really start thinking like, you know, it's not just about avoiding anymore. And it, climate change was always this scientific idea that do you believe in climate change <laughs> was always like, believe in, it's like, do you believe in, you know, physics? Do you snow. believe in science? Do you yeah, believe, do you believe in snow? Yeah. Exactly. Like, it's not about believing anymore. And then to, to face this, to be asked the question, how are you going to actually live through it? And having to research the, all the projections, it was a, it was a humbling experience. I've been thinking about that a lot in regards to sort of, I don't know how old you are. You look about, you know, mid thirties, 40 ish. I'll take that. Um, but we're the ones that are going to have to be the ones making the decisions, you know, 
leading the projects, um, you know, ushering the next generation in, has it weighed on you at all that it's not up to anyone else anymore? Like we can't, we, we're not, we're not waiting to be told what to do anymore. We have to be the ones that are going to like, our generation is going to be after ones that step up and tell, Hey, this is how it has to be now. And, and in your industry, do you find any um, resistance to that or, 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 or what's the, what's that process been like of being like, we have to be the ones that, that sort of teach, teach maybe both generations coming up after us and the one that came before us, like what's necessary to survive, you know? Yeah. My only hope is that I do see, um, I do see the younger generations caring and it's, they're growing up with it just not being a new idea. It's just part of their schooling. It's part of their, it's like, you know, learning, growing up on a computer and it's just natural to them. And so I do see, and I know we'll likely talk about the uh, Portage and Maine thing, but that's sort of the same idea. Like the, the it was a definite demographic thing and, and um, young people are seeing the world differently today. And I, I have a little bit of hope that uh, change is going to happen more quickly than we think because it is no longer a theory, it's reality. And so I think that the power of the young people sweeping it will hopefully just sweep it through and, and we actually finally, you know, knock the people out, the previous generations who, who resisted to protect their lifestyle, finally accept that it's happening and the young people are able to, to invoke real change. I think the problem was even just allowing it to be a debate in the first place in some cases, you know, like as soon as you start the, as soon as you say like, okay, well let's debate it, then you've already lost because there's no, you know, starting that, but you, you did bring up Portage in Maine. So maybe let's take, take me back to that era. What was it like? Cause you were one of the leading voices. I remember seeing on Twitter all the time and you know, you, you were, and, and like full disclosure, I was on the vote open. Like let's, it would do, it would have been so cool. Just maybe take me back, and for people who ha- who are outside of Winnipeg listening, take me back and give me the context of the situation. And maybe as a follow up question, how do you think the vote would go now if it was you know tomorrow? It was an amazing time. I mean, the the mayor um, was elected on a platform that he would open Portage in Maine, and it's been a it's been a discussion since it closed, really, and it closed in the eighties. So it's been you know forty years of um, of that way. And so the main intersection in the city is completely closed off to pedestrians. You, you can't cross. It has actually, it has concrete crash barriers to keep people from getting killed. If there were people on the sidewalk <laughs> from getting killed by the high speed, eight lanes of traffic in every direction. And so it's really designed as a, as a freeway interchange in the heart of our city. And it was the iconic, if you go to the museum of civilization in Hull, or um, I'm not sure what they call Hull anymore in Ottawa, um, there's a there's a huge display section about 20th century cities and the photo that's as big as a wall that is the the model for a 20th century cities is portage in maine in about the 1940s or so it was the model it was the iconic intersection of the city and in the 80s we were down on our on our luck um economy was bad and we um a developer from Toronto wanted to build a tower and and a indoor shopping mall and said that he would do it they would do it if they closed the uh, the intersection to pedestrians and drove pedestrian traffic down into the shopping center so that's what it was it wasn't about you know during the during the debate i heard all about 
it was closed because people were getting killed there all the time and you know the, it was too windy and all these sort of myths that had grown for the, the previous 40 years it sort of became this urban legend of like almost climbing Everest it was this weird sort of place that was totally different from 100 meters over one block over you can walk um, so it just became this mythological place so the mayor was elected to to open it but then started to see in the second election in his second term started to see that there was um, there were a lot of people new candidates using it as a way to really define yourself because it wasn't really about the intersection it was about this is what I stand for as a person you know it was you could easily say I stand for closing or keeping Porjamin closed and that meant you connect to sort of middle class conservative voters in the suburbs really was sort of what you were saying you were it was a way to identify yourself quickly and so that's what we were up against and so the mayor um, called a plebiscite instead of just doing it which then made it a vote and so when you're voting on a specific question like that there was no chance i honestly think if you were voting on should we give everybody in winnipeg a thousand dollars i still think it would barely pass <laughs> because people would find reasons to not do that and so we've i became part of a group the vote open group it was just a group of people who were trying to do their best to, to get the word out um and we spent six months beating the we had pamphlets we i went to farmers markets and and festivals and all those things and tried to get the word out and we had we had uh all kinds of um debates on the radio and, but we were up against like there were there were counselors actually um campaigning against it openly campaigning against it but any counselor that would or potential counselor that was campaigning for it was immediately um called trying to influence an independent plebiscite so they just wouldn't do it there was no vehicle for us to get the word out other than my twitter account and you know basically hope and so i wasn't even allowed to write in the free press that over that time because it was felt that i was too biased so, I mean, we did our best and honestly, it turned out even worse than I, I, it felt better than when we saw the vote. It was two thirds to keep it closed, one third to keep it or to open it. Yeah. But the, the next day it came out, the, the geographic location of mm -hmm. the vote, which was a shocking thing. Mm -hmm. um, it was this blue section in the middle, sort of the inner city neighborhoods, the mature neighborhoods. So the people who live there? The people who live there and interact with it yeah. voted yes. Everybody in the donut voted no. And I tweeted out the next day. I didn't tweet for a while after that. I tweeted out, um, I don't feel alone, but I feel surrounded. And that was like, it was sort of like this weird, and that's why I thought it was going to go better because my world, right. that blue circle, was for it. And everybody I talked to was for it, but clearly the, the rest of the population wasn't. So it was a no-win situation, but... Yeah, it was tough. It, it did spawn a lot of very funny memes about like people in this donut do this and people in this donut do this. So, but like, I am in. I'm trying to be in the business of connecting people. So obviously, people just want to be safe. They want to be healthy. They want their families to. You know, they want all this. Everyone wants the same things. So how do we bridge this seemingly? I feel like I'm asking this question on so many podcasts. How do we bridge the divide between people who are concerned about them and their neighborhoods versus the people who are concerned about the full sort of wholesome health of the entire city? You know, what, what, how do we bridge that divide or can we, or is it just like, 
help me. It's a really difficult question. Yeah. And honestly, the the Portage and Main thing wasn't about, to me, it wasn't about Portage and Main. It was about Portage and Main. But the bigger question was, what do we want our city to be? What do we want the face of our city to, to tell um, visitors? What Don't we want to be proud of our city? Don't we want to love our city? I want to love. I've chosen to live in Winnipeg till I die. <laughs> I want to love that city. So help me. You know, I don't love those that interchange in the center of my city. I would love to have shops and cafes and people and connection and, you know, vibrancy and life. That's what I want. And I think that's what everybody wants. And if I was going to back to do that thing all over again, I would, I would say, um, I was always trying to fight it with facts. People were like, oh, there was this image that it was going to be lined up in traffic all the way to the perimeter highway. And I would say, you know, the traffic study says 28 seconds. Yeah. You know, I was trying to fight it with, with facts and I should have been fighting it with uh, a vision. Mm. I should have been saying, don't you want your children to choose to live in Winnipeg? When they get old enough to choose the city they live in, don't you want them to choose Winnipeg? Or do you want them to choose Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal or cities that offer an urban lifestyle, a connected lifestyle? Because more and more people are wanting that option. We still have the suburbs, yeah. but we need to as a prosperous city to allow different lifestyle choices. We have one lifestyle choice in Winnipeg predominantly. And so that was the question for me, the bigger question of what Portage and Maine stood for. It was about creating a different type of lifestyle to keep our young people, to be prosperous, to make people proud of their city, to make other people proud of Winnipeg or think about what Winnipeg could be in the future. And I think that's the debate we I still fight today. And it's not Portage and Maine, but it's it's about creating walkable neighborhoods and all these other things that not doing things the way we did it in the past, but move forward. And it's gaining traction for sure. Yeah, for sure. I think that the trend is in the right direction. And like you said before, the next generation is going to, it's not even going to be a debate. It's not even going to be up for a vote. It's just like, this is the way we're going to do things. Yeah. The, the thing that kind of really, I feel like it was early on in the conversation when I think it was someone with mobility issues, it either used a wheelchair or a walk or something. And they, they tweeted oh, yeah, or, or there you go. So they, you know, the story more than I do probably, but basically tried to get just across the street, just tried to get across the street. And the process was 17 minutes or something like that. So like, yeah, you're going to add a couple minutes to your commute in the morning, but some people literally can't cross the street in, you know, around 20 minutes. So that was kind of, as soon as I heard that, I was like, that's it. The, the argument's over, but it's like eight yeah. elevators, two right. ramps, it's yeah. just a crazy <laughs> And they're actually, and honestly, I don't, I'm not even worried about it anymore because it's going to happen. It will happen because it's just such a ludicrous condition. Um, and now things are happening. The Métis are, are opening up a cultural center right at Portage in Maine. They're actually building a, a rapid transit station right on Portage Avenue East. You can't have a rapid transit station with no way to get to it. So it, it will happen. And, you know, it was, to me, it was sort of like the last gasp. I have a friend who said, who told me like, that was the, sort of the dying gasp of the previous generation mm. way of life, you know, and, and it was 100%. And if we hold held that vote for with only young people, it would have been a different thing. And so as the generations change, I think priorities change and lifestyles change and, and the things we want in our city change. And I see that happening. So it's, it, we'll laugh at it in 10 years, I think. Beautifully said. And I love the approach of, you know, of, of approaching it through not necessarily an emotional lens, but certainly like a, you know, think of your kids, like, what are your kids going to want? Do they want to have a park when they go downtown to school or to university or whatever? They can't yeah. afford a half million dollar house. Like, honestly, yeah. you bought your house when it cost 80 grand and now it's worth 600,000. Like most people, 
young people aren't going to have that luxury. And so they're looking for different lifestyle choices and different opportunities. And that's what's going to shape the, the city of the future. It's not going to be the values of the previous generation who has, you know, has wealth in their in their home that nobody else will ever, ever have. Has your approach to the discussion changed? Like now that we've you've gone through these campaigns and different experiences and been on Twitter and had these sort of debates, like I know for me, I'm just speaking for me personally and maybe projecting here, but like I used to be very, that's not the way it is. Here's the way, you know, like a little bit more confrontational. And now and, and just sort of digging deep into what you said about like the emotion and trying to connect with people. Have you changed the way you approach sort of educating people on this on these matters or, or what's that process been like? Yeah. Twitter and I think even the even back when free press used to allow comments, mm -hmm. I would occasionally go in and with guns blazing and you know <laughs> stir up the hornet's nest just for fun. Uh -huh. um, but it, I think I'm I'm learning. I see people on Twitter who are who are very militant and are very sort of polarized, and you know you need those people. That's how change happens. But um, I think there's also a way to engage people in a different way that makes them, allows them to think differently, uh, to sit back and reflect. And I think that's, I try to make that the, the approach now. Like I understand, like, as I say, like using, where do you want your kids to grow up is a way, you know, when I talk to a, a 65 year old person who lives in the suburbs and owns their home and, and is dead set, would never go downtown or never go to the inner city. and they're impossible to, and I can't tell them you're wrong. I want an urban lifestyle or I want, you know, a more sustainable city. I, you know, the, I, I care about the environment. I care about social equality. I care about those. You can't get through to them, but if you put it in their, in their life, you know, make them think about how it affects their life. Like, where do you want your children to live? That's how you begin to break through the, through the barriers and, and get them to think about what is the long term? What am I being selfish? Am I thinking only through my lens? Can I put myself in the shoes of someone else? And I think that's the that's the way you do it. And I see it on Twitter all the time. Um, more militant and more polarized discussion is only going to cause divide. And, and I totally understand how it happens and why it happens. I try not to be that anymore. I try to be a little bit more um, Try to understand where people are coming from a little bit more than than maybe when I was younger, and I, I really thought you're just wrong, and I don't understand how you don't believe me or you know whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's and it's empathy, right? And you you seem to take an empathetic stance and an empathetic approach, at least when you're talking to people, like even when someone has a you know a, a hot take that's completely antithetical to what you might you know, espouse, you still say like, okay, well, I see why you're saying this, but what about this, this, and this? And it, and I think it's, it's just, a, it's just a little bit more, um, probably effective. Cause you, you just shut down the conversation immediately. If you're just like, you're wrong, I'm right. Whereas if you can say like, well, have you thought about this aspect or, you know, this, this way and that way, but yeah, it's a, it's a crazy time to be, uh, and even I'll just say, even, even with my writing in the free press, that sort of came from, um, I'm a, I work in private industry and, um, when I started writing, my bosses were terrified that I was going to say something wrong. Honestly, we have suburban developers all the time. We have, you know, things that I advocate, not against, but when I talk about other ways of doing things, it can make the people that are paying my, for me to put food on my plate, um, it can be against sort of what their business is or what their, their thoughts are. And so I had to learn pretty quickly how to write in a way that was not saying you're wrong, 
but saying, have you thought about this? And so that's how I try to approach all my columns. I might be, I'm a little more, I think, aggressive maybe on social media, but when I write on the permanent record, I always try to make sure that it's, I don't say we should, I try to never use the word should. Mm. I always try to frame the, the conversation in a, have you thought about this way? Yeah, I think that's very effective. Yeah, no, well, thank you for sharing your thoughts on this podcast. I appreciate it. So are you generally optimistic about the way things are going when it comes to city design and, and, and walkable cities and all this stuff? Maybe not just for Winnipeg, but the way that sort of the, the whole world is starting to grow and evolve. Or, or are you neutral, optimistic, or pessimistic? What would you say? You know, I think we face some of the biggest challenges in history, for sure. Social, I mean our city is different than when I was a kid. There's no question about that. And we face some huge challenges, but I do think even this whole week, these last few weeks of opening the conversation about residential schools, I feel like these are conversations that just didn't happen 10 years ago and city building and how we can build equitable cities and why we need to invest in transit, even though you'll never get on a bus, why it's important that we have a good transit system, why there should be bike lanes in the North End. And, you know, all of these conversations, I think, are happening and never would have happened 10, 15 years ago. So I, I, I am optimistic. I think we have bigger challenges than we've ever had. But I am optimistic that the world is changing and people and I think the, new, the next generation is not a continuation. There's always been a continuation since World War Two, really, of just sort of growing on the previous generation. I feel like the next generation is a hard shift to something new and it's it's to do with climate change and our social and you know just the cost of, of living and quality of life that people are experiencing today is different than sort of that growth over the last 60 years so yeah i'm optimistic i think i think there's really good things happening and social media for all its warts i think opens conversation that never had an opportunity before and you know the things that we're seeing today wouldn't be the same if we weren't able to connect to it immediately. And if we were only listening to the CBC news at 10 o'clock to get our information and then talking to, you know, your friend about it, that's a completely different dynamic than today when we get instant information and are able to process so many things. I think the, the I think change is, is snowballing and I, I am optimistic that the, the world is going to be a better place. Beautiful answer. Thank you for that. Well, at the end of our time together, we do a segment called Just Because, where it's seven questions, uh, all about the causes you care about and the effect that it's had on your lives. You okay to go through that with me? Let's do it. All right. Question one, what is the very first cause you ever remember caring about? You know, I, um, I was always a, a political person. I was really interested in, in federal politics, but uh, as a kid, and I, you know, I went and door to door for my local candidate in high school and that kind of thing. But but I will say that my advocacy, if, if I'm an advocate in any way, has sort of been a, a, a slow growing process. When I started writing in the free press, I was really writing about architecture. I'm an architect and I, it, was a, it was, came out of um, a committee I was on for the Manitoba Association of Architects, was a public affairs committee to really to get the, the importance of architecture and the role of architecture in our, in our society out to the world. And so I proposed that I would write in the free press and, it was specifically about buildings. And I remember a friend of mine at the time, he, he said, uh, like, how many times can you write about the hydro building? And he, you know, he was right, because at the time, I've been writing for about 10 years, um, there, wasn't, um, there wasn't a lot happening, but sort of as I, as I wrote more, I've written almost 200 columns, as I wrote more and researched more and, and thought more, 
about how buildings fit into a city, how people react to buildings, how cities um, affect people's lives, the quality of life. They're, you know, they're, um, they're everything about how we um, react to our city is architecture and city building. And so really over the last 10 years, it's been this gradual um, increase to really becoming an advocate for all kinds of, for, you know, equitable cities and, and sustainability. And so it wasn't, it wasn't like I was always a kid who was, you know, leading the, the, the fight. It's, it kind of came slowly and, 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 but it's changed my life and it's been a great thing. Well, you, you really realize how fundamental design, you know, people kind of think like, ah, oh, you know, I, I'm sure in the past it's kind of been like, ah, just let them do whatever and we'll, we'll figure it out after. But yet it has to be at the very base level of what, what you're planning something to even like down the road when it comes to a, something as abstract as addiction or something that's still going to be affected by how the cities are designed and you have to be just this, this, this holistic approach. Yeah, that's very well said. Question two, if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all and you could just snap your fingers and something would happen, what would you do in support of your, your current cause? You know, I think um, it's pretty much without question the number one issue facing Canadian cities and, and our city in particular is the social and economic inequity. Um, obviously, if I could snap my fingers and change something, that would be the very first thing that I would do. Obviously, that's a very complex um, problem that is a complex solutions. But you know, we have indigenous people in our in our minds lately, and I, I truly feel like the the future prosperity of Winnipeg is is directly tied to the future prosperity of indigenous people, and city building is a huge piece of that we don't really think of how our how we build our city um affecting the lot the quality of lives of everybody in the city it, you know mobility is such a, a huge issue um investing in transit and active transportation providing access to employment and education and recreation without having to own a forty thousand dollar suv mm -hmm. you know um we have zoning that's exclusionary that that keeps our neighborhoods from being um, low density and not diverse and you know, not allowing kids access to good schools and to different social networks. And, and you know, even building generational wealth is so critical in, in elevating people out of poverty. And, and we have zoning rules that keep people, you know, the character of my neighborhood has to stay this way and we can't have rentals, we can't have apartment buildings in, in you know, on a residential street. That's limiting access to all of those quality of life things that that lift people out of out of their situation and and provide um, access to something to something greater and so city building is 100% connected to um, to that issue and I, I think we need to start seeing start looking at how we build our city not through the lens of how fast we can drive across it or you know traffic or those kind of issues or potholes and start thinking about how do we build our city to make people's lives better, how to elevate people and to make it more socially equitable across the entire city. You got my vote. Are you, have you ever, have you ever considered like, I don't know, man, that was a very well said, well crafted, you know, like well thought out response. Have you ever, this is not part of the, but just because segment, but have you ever considered running for any sort of political office or, or making that decision? I know the, the, the classic answer is I'm not decided at this time, you know, but have you, have you considered it or thought that that might be a path you might someday walk down? I do love my job, but I do also need a pension. There so, you uh, <laughs> great answer. Beautiful. Possibly, you know, it's, I always say, I get asked that question every once in a while. And, uh, I always say though, like if we look at the Portage and Maine results, one third, two thirds, might be an uphill battle for 
to get elected. It has to be in the right place. That's for sure. Yeah. It's all about timing. Definitely. Question three, what's the biggest misunderstanding or biggest stigma about your cause? I I mentioned the, the free press comments before, and, uh, you know, I used to occasionally wait in there and see what the comments are and even on Twitter. And I think the, 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 thing that I hear the most is uh, Bellamy just wants everyone to live in a shoebox apartment in downtown like that you know that that's what urbanism means to them and that is absolutely not the case like um, good urbanism good city building is about building diverse and equitable and dense residential neighborhoods vibrant walkable connected to transit you know um, connected with with cycling and good schools and parks and quality of life, those are the things that, that are important. And, you know, when I talk about density and infill, which is such a hot topic, I'm not talking about the density of New York or Hong Kong. Winnipeg, the mature neighborhoods of Winnipeg in the 1970s had 30% more people living in them than live there today. So to me, the good old days of the 1970s, which most people will, you know, older people will say, that's all I want. If we could get back to being 30% more dense in the, in the, in the mature neighborhoods, we would be a completely um, transformed city. We would be um, more sustainable. We'd be more walkable. Transit would suddenly be uh, an effective way to get around. To me, it's, it's just getting back to that level of density. And, and so, yeah, I often hear that he just wants us to live in an apartment building. That is absolutely not the case. I want great neighborhoods. That's what I want. The strength of community can cannot be cannot be debated, right? Like if you have a strong community, it takes a village, right? So, uh, question four. This is a new one. What is the a recent victory in your life, either personally or professionally, that you're proud of achieving? Yeah, people often forget that I'm actually an architect, fifty hours a week. That the the whole writing and that's just a, a hobby. Um, and architecture is tough because buildings take a long time to happen. It's not like you're a furniture designer or you know, a graphic designer, it can take years and years and years. And I had, I went through a stretch where I, I had nothing built, nothing that I was designing was getting built. Projects were dying. The last project that I had built was the Qualico Family Center in Assiniboine Park, which was like almost 10 years ago. And over the last year, I've had a couple of really great projects finally get built and, and the Richardson Innovation Center in the Exchange District and West Broadway Commons is a, an affordable housing project on, on Broadway that both had incredible clients. Both were just, you know, one West Broadway Commons, it saved a church and it's affordable housing. And it's like doing such great things for that neighborhood. It's, it's why I went to school was to, to work on projects like that and with incredible clients. And, and I'm finally getting to put all this loudmouth stuff that I talk about all the time into practice and building a better city and and with new uh, with the I was mentioning the, the amount of residential development happening I'm super busy and getting an opportunity now to to change neighborhoods physically not just through advocacy but actually being able to have something that came out of my imagination built and it's an I there's nothing I love being architect and there's nothing greater than seeing something that came from your imagination actually have people interact and live in and work in and it's a phenomenal thing so Beautiful. i've been lucky the last year yeah that awesome i love it uh question five what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given you know there's all kinds of advice in life and i i have there's two that i would say my uh my and they're related but many years apart um 
my dad who passed away a few years ago, he, he I always admired him for his sort of uh, large outlook on life. Like he, he, nothing really got him worked up and he had a really good perspective on, on just life in general. And he said to me one time when I was young, he said, people don't think about you as much as you think people think about you. And you know, that was, he was totally right. You know, you get wrapped up in this, I can't look stupid, I can't make a mistake, I can't put myself out there because I'm, I'm afraid of what people will think of me. People don't care about you. They care about themselves. They're worried about how they look. They don't care about you. So it really freed that kind of, as a young person, it freed me up to, to not be so afraid of, of making mistakes and, and getting out there. And then about 10 years ago, my boss at work here, um, when I started writing, I was getting more and more invitations to do things like this and to talk and to do public speaking. And I was like everybody, I was terrified to public speak. I'm, I'm an introvert at heart. And I remember telling him, I said that, uh, you know, I, I find every reason possible to say no to these things. And it's a shame because I get asked all the time. And, and he looked at me and he said, you know, you've been given a great opportunity here. You should look for reasons to say yes. And I thought, you know, I'm going to just do that. And I just said, I just said yes to every single thing. And it opened up so many doors for me and allowed, it changed my life. It changed how I, how I think about the world and has uh, been good professionally and personally. And so those two things that like to not fear making mistakes and to jump in both feet really um, combined to, to sort of guide my life in the last, you know, 10 years. Great answer. Thank you. That was awesome. Very wise man. Your dad sounds like. Oh, that's a good approach. Uh, question six, staying on the advice or to train, what, what advice would you give your 10-year-old self if you could talk to him right now? My 10-year-old self had a great gold supercycle bike with white fenders. And he loved that bike. And it got him around. And it was freedom for him. And my advice to him would be, just because you get old and just because you're an adult doesn't mean you have to give that up. You know, I grew up in the suburbs. I turned 17, bought a car, never looked back. And that was my whole life, just drove everywhere. And, you know, a few years ago, I bought a Dutch bike from Plain Bicycle, which is a group of people who imported a bunch of used bikes from the Netherlands. And it completely changed my life. If there's like one object that changed my life more than anything, it was that stupid bike. Because I've had a beautiful sports car since I was a kid some kind of sports car. And I sold my car and my bike is my primary transportation. And I don't do it because it saves me lots of money or because it's environmentally sustainable. It is those things. I do it because it makes me feel so good. It makes me feel like that 10 year old kid. And I'm a bit of a, a evangelist about it, like a, a born again, because it's like, I'm, I'm that 10 year old kid who loves riding his bike everywhere. And I literally, everywhere across the city it's my primary and i'm i'm a i hate cold weather i hate hot weather i'm a sissy like i'm a softy mm -hmm. um so anybody can do it and so i i try to tell people like just try riding your bike places and it will change how you feel about your it changes how i see the world how how you experience um, the things around you and just makes you feel better so i would tell my 10 year old self to not stop riding your bike because it can it can change who you are beautiful answer again Thank you for that one as well. Jeez, you're, this is an A-plus a plus podcast right now. This is incredible. Then the last question is uh, usually the hardest one for people, but uh, what do you want to be remembered for? 
You've got 200 articles down now. Are you, I'm assuming you're going to write more, but what, when, when people look back at, at your career and your, your messaging, what do you, what do you hope they glean from that? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely don't think I'm anybody that needs to be remembered in any way, but I, I hope when people think about me that they, they think that it's, I'm just a normal guy who volunteers his time to um, spark a discussion and to present sort of new ways of thinking about how we're building our city and, and the kind of life that we're, we're building for not just us, but for the next generations and to, to think about the future and stop thinking about what's been done in the past and continuing that, that road. And hopefully, you know, if, if people think that I was able to change a mind here and there or to, to spark conversation that was deeper than maybe was initially thought by presenting new ideas, to me, that's sort of the, I'll be happy if that's the, if, if I'm remembered for that. If I changed someone's mind somewhere or made them think differently about something that maybe they hadn't thought about, that's what I want. I would like to be remembered that way. Beautiful. As always, great answer. Thank you, Brent. Um, it's been a wonderful you know, conversation. It's been great to get to know you. Thank you for everything you do for the city. Keep on fighting that good fight. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say? Or, or um, I mean, your Twitter account is something we can promote, but any, anything else coming no, up that you... you know? <laughs> I guess I'll give you the last word. Anything else you want to say to our listeners? Yeah, thanks very much. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I do have optimism for Winnipeg. And I think coming out of COVID, I was really down about it. Downtown was a scary place, mm -hmm. like empty. and, and it, it, But I have, I have optimism. And I think that we, we have a great city. And I can see through my work that people are getting excited about coming back into the world. And I'm, I actually think the next few years is going to be transformational for Winnipeg. But I have to, we have to keep on the right path and make sure that we don't fall back into the old ways. And I know it's, an, it's a trope, build back better, I think is really a thing we should think about. And how are we going to build the city over the next few years coming out of this pandemic for the next generation? And if we keep our eye on that ball, I think I'm, I'm really excited because I think the city is going in, in a great place. Well said, sir. Brent Bellamy, thanks for being on the podcast. Enjoy the roaring 20s and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Thank you again to Brent Bellamy for joining us on the podcast. Really great conversation. Uh, really one, and like I mentioned a couple of times on the podcast, one of the greatest follows on Twitter that you're going to have. Really interesting content that he puts out. Really cool, cool, thought-provoking and interesting things. So yeah, check him out at Brent Bellamy. And uh, yeah, thanks for being on the podcast. And thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. I know these days there's so many different things you could be doing with your time, whether it's you know TV shows, Netflix, or any other millions of podcasts that are out there. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for listening. And thank you for telling people about the podcast too. You know, if anyone ever asks you, oh, have you heard anything good lately? Please let them know about Because and Effect because uh, that's the best way to uh, spread the word and, and I really appreciate it. So thank you very much. All music on the show is produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can find more of his music at trentonburton.com. Because and Effect is a podcast of the Winnipeg Foundation. You can learn more about the foundation by searching at WPGFDN on all social media accounts or by visiting their website at www.wpgfdn.org. I'm at Nolan Bicknell on all social media accounts. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. And remember, you can't use up creativity. The more you use, the more you have. Bye-bye. Thank you.